Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Really excited for you to join us today. We have important conversations about theology, apologetics, philosophy, all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, today we got Dr. Josh Rasmussen and his lovely life wife, Rachel. Um, obviously, Dr. Josh, you're probably used to him talking about some heavy philosophical concepts about contingency or causation or things like that. Um, but we're going to talk about a completely different topic today. Um, we're going to be talking about their new book, uh, When Heaven Invades Hell. Really an Really amazing book. I read it through and I really enjoyed it. Um, so welcome to Here in Apologetics. How are you guys doing? We're good. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Uh, this is a really interesting book. It's a very challenging book, I feel like. Um, but before we get into the topic of discussing the idea of hell or maybe some other topics, you just talk a little bit in case people don't know who you are about who you guys are and what you do. So I'm a professor of philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. And uh, one of the things I just love to do is to try to understand the foundations, the fundamental principles. And I've been applying my interest to the nature of existence and the nature of our minds. But then in this book, we talk about the nature of really the destiny of souls. So anything that's kind of fundamental is my area of, of interest. And I am primarily homeschooling our uh, four kids right now, um, but I've also in the past, um, well, I have a master's degree in physical chemistry, and I was working in an interdisciplinary group in nanotechnology. So that's what I was doing when I met him. And then um, after that, I became a worship leader. I've been a, a, a musician ever since I was a kid, um, and now I'm kind of um, shifting into um experimenting with business and kind of uh, author, author artist writing all kinds you know. of hats i see yeah yeah so yeah and doing some freelance artwork and stuff you know so just kind of a mixture of things at the moment yeah it's awesome i'm really excited to talk with you guys so i figure we can kind of just jump into this book uh when heaven invades hell really really good book. I really enjoyed reading it. I encourage everyone listening Thank to check you. it out. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about kind of like what's the inspiration behind this book? Just kind of like some of the general things of this book, When Heaven Invades Hell. So I sort of see two layers in the book. So one layer is about just sort of like the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. Like what are the patterns of God's kingdom? And then what are the patterns of the enemy kingdom? And so we kind of thread some of these, these things throughout the book. And then the sort of event layer of the book is about this question about the destiny of souls. And so what inspired me to write the book was I was thinking about, well, both Rachel and I were having long conversations about um, just these eschatological questions about mm. the what happens to souls after they die. So, you know, we think that there's an afterlife, but there are different questions about uh, the nature of that afterlife and how that works. And so we both had a kind of, um, I would say, expansion of our own thinking. And as I was kind of reflecting on some of the steps in the journey of my own thinking, I was thinking, like, how can I display this for others? Like, how can I help others to see even just a wider set of options to think about? Ooh. And then one morning I got to my office. It was early in the morning, I think, like, before 5 a.m. I got to my desk and I'm like thinking, okay, what should I do? You know, and I just had this idea of the the whole outline of the book, basically this uh, debate that would take place in heaven where everybody who's participating in the debate loves each other, but there's actually a question that they don't have an agreement on. And so they work through the different arguments in, in this debate. And this is kind of a way of helping people to kind of see what the arguments are through this sort of a, a loving context and in a sort of fictional setting, I think makes it less, I don't know, sometimes I think in an academic setting, if somebody gives you an argument, your shields go up. But if it's in a sort of fictional setting, you almost have like this desire to explore. You're like mm -hmm. curious, so how's this going to work out? And then because it's a debate in heaven, all the characters are good. They love each other, but they're representing different sides of the question. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what inspired it was I just wanted to help other people get a larger set of options and communicate some of the changes in my own thinking. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I think that as I was reading your book, it kind of, it had some similarities to the great divorce by CS Lewis. Obviously it's a very popular book on kind of this question. And one thing I really love about your book is it, gives more options as you were talking about, Josh. I remember uh, growing up in a 
Christian environment, I always thought that the idea of eternal conscious torment was really the only belief on eschatology, and that's what all Christians believe. And one thing I really enjoy about your book and other people that are pushed are offering different ideas is just showing that you don't necessarily have to just fall into one fold on this topic. There's people that are really smart on all different sides of this debate. So I think that's something really interesting that you bring in your book. Yeah, helping to show that there are topics I think can remove barriers to like the essential mm -hmm. core gospel message, mm -hmm. just knowing that there are options. And I think that's a really important point. It's not like it's my mission to circle one option and say, okay, this is the only option. If you don't accept this, like you can't be a Christian or something like mm -hmm. this. It's like the opposite. It's like I want to remove barriers to the core of understanding who God is. And by seeing different options, I think that really can help a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm on the same page. I think it's really helpful when we tell people just kind of like, the, what are the essentials of Christian belief? You have things like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, death and resurrection, things like that. Then you have all these other debates that are kind of important, but they're not, you don't have to be on one side to be, be a Christian. Um, so with your book, When Heaven Invades Hell, I'm curious if you guys could just give like, for someone who has no idea what this book is about, just like a basic synopsis, synopsis, oh my gosh, of this book, just like a broad plot overview of what's going on here. Yeah, so it's not um, a big epic battle. So <laughs> that's not what it is. Yeah, when heaven invades hell, you think it's yeah. like the big battle. <laughs> it's, not, it's not conquering. Actually, that's one of the core themes of the book is um, that one of the principles of heaven is that um, God isn't forcing himself upon us. Um, on the contrary to uh, the enemy, the enemy likes to use manipulation and force to try to, you know, uh, get more power. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so basically the entire uh, book is um, set in heaven and you are a character that you actually, it's, it's written in um, the uh, second person. So mm -hmm. we're talking about you explore heaven and you hear about, you know, this happening. And so, so that kind of gives you a little bit of mystery, like, well, who are you in this story? Like, you know, so, um, so uh, basically the whole story is set in heaven and it's mostly um, centered around uh, a question that the Lord presents to the citizens of heaven. They're all gathering in the inner courts for this sort of regular event that God shares something with them. That's amazing. A revelation. And, um, and instead of God just telling them something that's true, he asked them a question. Hmm. And so the whole rest of the book is about God's question to the citizens of heaven. And then their um, subsequent discussion about um what the question means and how um, the different options could be possible. So Josh, do you want to share what the question is? Right. So, okay. What was the question? No, it was okay. <laughs> be important question, to know. Yes. It was what, how would you feel if I offered a separated soul, a body of life in a place with us? So that was the question, the being of light or the Lord in heaven asks this, the citizens of heaven. And so immediately there's this question, like, why is God asking us this? Um, but then God sort of like disappears and then the beings in heaven start to think, okay, well, we need to answer this question. And so some of them are thinking, oh, okay, well, hmm, I mean, this would seem to violate God's justice. It would violate what we know from revelation, from the Bible that we've, you know, they, they remember being on earth, you know, and they remember God's revelation. And there are all these arguments and reasons that kind of, would make them think, well, maybe we would like it if God could offer a separated soul a place with us. And a separated soul is, you know, sort of our way of describing somebody who's suffering in hell or is in a place of darkness. Mm -hmm. And they're there because they weren't operating out of the kingdom of light. And so they're in their that other separated place. But then there are other people in heaven who are hopeful, you know, and they're thinking, well, maybe Maybe the reason the Lord is asking us this is because there's a possibility, you know, and so this so is when they, they emerge into two camps yep. and uh, they pick Moses to be the representer of um, those who would believe that it violates God's justice for any separated soul to join them that we call the nobles. Um, and uh, on the other side, uh, we have Adam who represents the hopeful who believe that it's possible that somebody who has been separated could rejoin the citizens of heaven. And so therefore the rest of the book goes into um, a, a dialogue 
um, between Adam and Moses kind of giving different considerations. Mm. I just want to emphasize just right here that I definitely was of the um, mindset before I began to look into these issues that there was only kind of one clear answer from scripture, that scripture clearly gives the one answer that no separated soul could ever have any additional chance after they die. So I thought that was very clear. And um, one of the things that we bring up in this book is the case from scripture for that position. But then we began to dig into that case and um, reveal some of the things that really, I, I just have to be honest, like change my own thinking about, about that, about what mm. the biblical data actually says. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about that? It seems almost you're kind of talking about this idea of universal reconciliation, that there's a chance that um, people who are lost now or lost when they die could come in their right relationship with God. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of like changed your mind, if that's kind of like the right way to describe your uh, views? I don't want to mischaracterize your views here. Yeah. Yeah. So if we distinguish, let's say three general views, it's not that these are all of them, but these are maybe the most popular. So you have the kind of eternal conscious torment view where some people go to a place of, uh, of suffering and they'll experience that suffering without end. So you might call this eternalism. And then there's an annihilationist view where um, there's different versions of this. One version would be that you go into a place of, of torment, but you're ultimately annihilated. Um, and then a, a universal reconciliation view would be that, well, different versions of this as well, but one version would be that you go into an age um, or state of judgment but that judgment, you don't stay there forever. It's an age and you can come out and ultimately all creation is reconciled. And so, um, I mean, there are different stages of kind of my journey, but one stage was just about what does the Bible clearly teach? What does it clearly teach? Because I just thought that, well, the Bible clearly teaches the eternalism. I mean, it, it says okay, their torment will go up forever and ever. You know, the, the worm will not die. You know, it has the, the language of the suffering and that it's permanent. And so, I mean, I just thought it was not even uh, even a question. Like the only reason somebody would have a different view was because uh, the biblical data wasn't something that they took seriously. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was I began to, to look into this. I came across um, an article that convinced me that it was possible for somebody to believe the biblical data uh, didn't support eternalism. Mm. Okay. Now I just want to clarify one thing here. This was an article by Keith Rose, a philosopher from Yale university called universalism in the Bible. And he made the case from his own viewpoint that the Bible supports universal reconciliation. Mm. I wasn't convinced by his case. Hmm. I really want to just say that I was not convinced by his case, but he did convince me that he believed that his case convinced him. (laughs) And that was enough for me to wonder about the biblical data. And I began to look deeper into it. Um, and so that was kind of a, a first stage is like kind of realizing that it was possible for somebody to be intelligent, to study the, the text, to not be convinced. And then discovering that the word there for eternal, that word literally means, we talk about this in the book, that that Jonah's time in the fish was forever. Mm-hmm. Well, he was in the fish for three days. He, he comes out, right? So that forever, and it's the same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It's the exact same word there as forever. Now, this is just the beginning. I mean, there's a lot more, but just that some of the things that seem so clear, like, oh, this clearly says forever, mm-hmm. but then that same word applies to a state that comes to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just the beginning, but just, just to say that that was one episode. There are other episodes that had an effect, um, but I feel like that's almost the most important one because I remember I was emailing a friend where I was defending philosophically eternalism, how, you know, the kind of C.S. Lewis model of separation and mm-hmm. and why God's honoring their choice. I was defending it philosophically, um, but I didn't think it could be, uh, I, but, but I thought biblically, uh, well, okay. So yeah, I came to the pl- place where I couldn't defend it biblically. So I began to switch in eternalism philosophically, but not biblically. Mm. And that was kind of an interesting um, change for me. Mm. I don't know, Rachel, if you want to add to that. Yeah. Um, so my um, my 
thinking on this is different than my husband's. So um, we're not 100 percent the same. <laughs> we're not, I thought you were like, we still no watch like, on the same exact page, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was raised in a Baptist church, and obviously, the main important thing um, in that sort of, you know, you're you're uh, a very, you know, you take Christianity and the messages of the Bible and eternal hell very seriously. And so the most important priority is evangelism. Um, and so I, um, I definitely had that frame, um, growing up. And so, um, for me, I, uh, began to realize like, okay, so there are a lot of other people who have different views about the afterlife. You know, if you throw in the, the, atheists or the naturalists in there, like, I mean, you basically are just gone immediately, like when you lose your, your brain function, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, but you know, if you include um, people who are um, just of various spiritual traditions, you also have the idea that there is no heaven or hell at all. Um, and then you also have the idea that, um, that there could, if you have a God who is similar to like, you know, what you might think is the traditional Christian God, um, that God wouldn't out of love send anyone to a place like hell ever. So that would mean that immediately upon death, everyone is sort of just brought into this, this light and this warm, loving place. And, and that's what, you know, every being would deserve, like just if there were, were really a loving God. So those sorts of arguments, um, none of them were, you know, uh, I was, I was under an impervious armor of my um, upbringing. So um, not, I was like, well, I'm very skeptical of anyone making those arguments because um, it seems like they're just, you know, using man's, philosophy mm-hmm. right and they're not taking the bible seriously right so um so just so that you, so that you know <laughs> at least one of the authors of this book is not coming from this from a purely philosophical perspective but um well it's so- not that i was coming from a purely philosophical <laughs> perspective that's why it was very significant that yes. the biblical data got overturned first in my thinking mm. yes okay so Um, so anyway, I wanted to, um, also just say that I think for me, it it very much is a question that I have been, um, continually, um, holding before God, like in prayer, Mm -hmm. like in my own personal life. Like, so it would be something where, um, I have, uh, just as a pattern, I, you know, if I have a question, I would just ask God about it. And I would just ask for guidance and ask for, you know, more information, more insight. Um, and so it's one of those things where, um, even at this point, I can't say that I just know a hundred percent certainty, like with a hundred percent certainty, like this is how it is. Like I'm, um, not really in that position. I think it is probably, um, not a very good position to be in actually. Cause I think there's a lot of things that we don't know, but um, I do believe that um, over time that um, I feel like uh, the Lord has spoken certain things to me and I've had various confirmations and, and so like it's directed my thinking in certain directions. Um, and so like, that is a very like personal sort of a experience for myself. Um, but I think in the book, the important thing to point out is that we are assuming um, that there are people who are actually being sent to a place of judgment after they die because of their deeds or because, you know, they didn't accept Christ or whatever, whatever it was, right? That they're in a place that is actually conscious torment. And we're just taking that for granted. Let's just take that as the assumption that that's how things are. And so we're, we're having that as the foundation layer of our, um, of our book, of the fiction story. So, um, you know, uh, we were talking with someone who was saying, well, you know, oh, you guys must believe, you know, in an eternal conscious torment, sort of a frame of hell. I believe in annihilationism. So, you know, and, and I'm just saying like, just for the sake of the story, we were just taking something as a baseline. And so this actually um, doesn't, you know, like just think of it as this is a tool for um, exploring. exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not necessarily trying to make an against argument. Annihilation. We're, we're mm-hmm. not trying to argue just by using um, a certain setting of the story for one thing or another thing. The main point that we have in our story is to um, actually just bring about 
different angles of thinking about mm -hmm. the question and even just kind of bringing in some things that are a little bit different that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, we usually don't talk about it in this way, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, I mean, definitely, usually the conversations aren't, you know, between characters in heaven discussing, mm -hmm. you know, like, it's just, you know, bring it out of the box a little bit. I think it helps just to, um, to, you know, open the imagination to, um, what really is implied, and then also um, uh, what different options are. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I love about your book is it you don't come across as like, you guys are right, everyone else is wrong, they're crazy or blind or not ignoring the evidence, something like that. I love it because it's very open, and it's like, here's these things that we can explore um, as Christians and as thinkers and really dive into these topics more. I think um, in, t in terms of this idea almost of, universal reconciliation. I think there's a few questions that almost intuitively will come up. Um, I'm sure you guys have wrestled with them as you've thought about this idea. And the first one is the Bible talks a lot about hell. Um, so I know you, you guys aren't necessarily convinced that the universal reconciliation is true, but I know you, you explored at least a little bit in your book. Uh, but from that state of mind, like how do you look at all the talk about Jesus talks about hell a lot. The idea of hell is mentioned in Revelation. All throughout the Bible, we see this idea of hell. So from your guys' view, like, how do you explore that idea um, in this book and just in your own theology? So, I mean, just as Rachel was saying, we kind of take it as a baseline that mm -hmm. there is a, a hell in our in outer darkness. In, fact, in that, the very, like, in the most horrible way that you can imagine right. there being a hell, like, yeah. not even just like, you know, oh, like, there's a place of separation or something. Like, no, no, no. Like, the people there are actually like being tortured, like that sort of torment. Like, so we do take the most take extreme view. As being mm -hmm. real. Right. right. Yeah. And, you, and you can't get out, uh, you know, and, and like there is that chasm and you mm -hmm. can't bridge it. Yeah. And, and even if you just say like, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, it's like too late. You're there. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, in fact, part of the book was to explain how if there is a hell, it would be possible for there to be a, a way of reconciliation. And so that's where we kind of go through these different scenes to show how even in principle you could have um, the the sort of reconciliation between the saints and the beings of darkness. So the saints would actually have to offer forgiveness because there's a broken relationship there. I mean, sometimes we don't really think about the fact that one of the reasons for separation between light and dark or good and bad is to protect good people. Because if you have like murderers and, and people who are bent to destroy you and, but God loves you, wants to protect you. He's got to separate you from the people who want to destroy you. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so there has to be some kind of a reconciliation there. And so that's the first thing I want to make sure it's really, really clear that, I mean, we um, in our, in our arguments do not even take up the option that there isn't a hell. We just assume that there's a hell. And I think one of the things that surprised me on the universal reconciliation model was that it doesn't deny hell. Um, what it says, well, there's different versions of it, but the version that is most attractive to me is that hell is a stage or an age uh, of time. So it, it accomplishes a purpose where people can experience sort of the fullness of the path of destruction as a way of giving them, um, well, one idea is by giving them the fullness of that understanding, it's kind of like the pride becomes before a fall. Like the best way to correct a prideful person is for them to experience the consequences of their pride or, you know, to bring them into humility. And so that there's actually a redemptive role of separation that can lead to reconciliation in the long term. Right. And also just pointing out that um, we're not taking a pluralist um, yeah. idea. So we're not saying that just anybody's concept of, oh, like this is good enough or this is like the right way. We're not taking that path either. Mm -hmm. So we're actually um, in the book making it very clear that there is only one way. <laughs> like we actually have a golden door. Like you have to pass through this golden door <laughs> in order to get out of here. To right. Access, so, yeah. 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 So um, even the concept of like it is every person's responsibility to ultimately go through that door you know, like that, that is part of the model that we would be 
presenting or playing with in the book. Um, so also like, I think that that's, that's something that somebody could worry about in the universal reconciliation. Like, oh, like is God somehow just overriding free will? Like, isn't free will important? And it's like, well, no, like actually on this model, like every single person has to come into the light or come into the truth um, through God's grace. And so like, that is, that is the model that we would be exploring in the book. So I think with this model, the other intuitive question that would probably come up is what's the purpose of this life? Um, you know, I'm sure that people will be saying, well, Josh and Rachel, and I know you obviously don't want to straw man you guys here, but they're saying, oh, everyone goes to heaven. So what's the point of this life? What's the point of someone giving everything to Christ? Why should I sacrifice the things I want in this life or be a missionary or give my money away or things like that uh, if it doesn't really matter at the end because everyone ends up in heaven? So how do you guys look at that? important question. Yeah, that is one of the common questions. I remember that question coming up very early, like with every person we ever talked with, like that always would come up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I would like come up with this example. This is, Rachel will have a better example. But I would just think about like, you know, like if my child went out into the street and a car is coming and then, I, and then I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should go protect my child from getting destroyed from that car. Or I could think, you know, my child's a Christian. If they die, they're going to go to heaven anyway. And I'll see them later in the future. I'll see them. So, you know, why should I try to protect them now? And it's like, well, no, no. The reason to protect somebody, the reason to go through the golden door, the reason to experience relationship with God is so that you can begin to uh, have that connection with him and to live that victorious life and to receive that grace sooner than later. It's like the king, we talk about the kingdom of heaven being a kind of present reality. And you want to have that as soon as possible and not mm -hmm. wait. I mean, why would you want to go to hell for ages and ages and ages? Mm -hmm. Even if you could get out. I mean, like, think about that. Like, hmm, I have got a choice. I can either go to heaven without going to hell or I can go to heaven by going through hell. Um, and especially if, if you don't even have a clear view on the matter, I mean, it's like, who knows, maybe you can't get out. Maybe it's like, you're just going to suffer there forever and ever and ever. Or maybe God has a surprise and you can get out after 2 million years or something. I mean, it's the point is, is that the universalist model that we present, um, through the, the, the hopeful side is that, that there really is a place of suffering if you don't go through the, the golden door. And so I think it's really, I mean, I, that's, that's something I really just want to emphasize is it's like, even if everybody eventually makes it to some great place, it would be better to make it there without going through this pain if you can avoid it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Josh did a great job anyway. So, <laughs> so I'm curious, um, really appreciate you guys responses here. I'm curious, we talked a little bit about C.S. Lewis earlier. Obviously, he wrote The Great Divorce, probably one of the more influential books from a non-professional trained theologian on the existence of hell. And obviously, his conclusion is uh, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Basically, people are who are in hell are people who wouldn't want to be in heaven. So I'm curious, like you guys, obviously, you, in your book, you have these two different perspectives that you have that are kind of looking at each other and engaging with each other. Well, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on like C.S. Lewis's ultimate thesis about the doctrine of hell? Did you have a thought? Um, yeah, I, I think that um, there's um, in Christendom in general, I think that there are a few different models, like, for example, that there could be people who are just deceived and they go to hell and they're just there. They're kind of being um, restrained against their will, like in this place. Um that seems like, especially if hell is eternal, like that seems like the most tragic sort mm. of view of the world, right? It's like, mm. oh man, I was just tricked. Like, I didn't know, like, help, mm. get me out of here. Yeah. Like, that's like the most heartbreaking sort of thing, right? I was it, part of the wrong religion. Like I tried <laughs> to get to the right religion. And, yeah. and, you know, the age of accountability is what, like eight years old? I was nine. I died <laughs> when I was nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to point out that that is very tragic. And I think that there are a lot of people that would be wondering like, well, whether like maybe that's true, you know? Um, so I think that um, there's different ways that, um, you know, philosophically Christian thinkers try to reconcile like what they would believe would actually be good, you know, consistent with a good God with the reality of hell, right? If they believe that that is the, 
you know, most honest interpretation of scripture is that there is a place where you go and it is just forever. Right. So um, I think that one way to do that then is to say that, well, everyone who went to hell wanted to go there. And so they lock it from the inside. And so then somehow that makes us feel better that they're over there suffering because they wanted to be there and they actually don't want to be, you know, rescued. And so like, that's just one way. Another way is to then say, well, somehow their suffering is sort of like it dies down over time or, you know, somehow, somehow things are alleviated. Right. So, so there's not this constant, very evil sort of uh, reality persisting throughout all time. Right. Because somehow we think that that's not really intuitive that that would be there or, or you have the other way, which is that, well, you have to have this sort of conscious torment that lasts forever in order to demonstrate the contrast between good and, and bad and to show God's justice for all time. Right. So, so there's different routes that people go, but I think the, the route where it's locked from the inside, um, we, that's actually totally consistent with um, the, the arguments and, and the way that our story goes is that people are locked in from the inside. So just take that and say, okay, you know what? Like, even if, you know, like, I'm just thinking of myself, like as a mom, like, even if my kid, like wants to be separated from me, and they lock the door. And I know that inside that room, it's like burning fire, like whatever it is, like, I'm still going to try to find a way to convince them to come out and to be restored to me. Like, I don't want them in their suffering, even if it's their choice to be in there. You know what I'm saying? Uh So, um, so I believe that um, we, kind of, we, we take that account, take that into account in our book. Um, I think also like all those other options, we're kind of keeping them in mind, like as we're writing the book. So like that, that ultimate restoration, um, that's why uh, for us, the pathway of the restoration is a choice by the person who's separated. So in a sense, um, nothing's impossible for God, as in God is, you know, a sort of a charismatic persuading sort of a personality that would be able to turn any heart. Like that's basically um, the, the worldview that maybe we would come to at the end in our book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just add a few things. So we do play in to this argument from choice. So Moses brings up the C.S. Lewis argument that if people have a choice and they keep choosing to resist love, resist the light, then it's out of God's hands. God's going to honor that unless God forces them to love him, in which case that that's not the kind of love God wants. And well, one thing that Adam says in response is that, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe God does give them a choice. So then how can you be so sure that nobody would ever choose to repent again? How can you know that? And because first he's just making an argument for hope. Now, maybe the way you know it is through Revelation, so we have to look at the arguments from Revelation. But if we're looking at this as a purely philosophical argument, I mean, this was one of the arguments. This is why I said I was able to defend the eternalism philosophically, because philosophically, you could imagine maybe people continue to choose separation forever and ever and ever. Um, and, and that was even after I couldn't defend it biblically, I could defend it philosophically. But it's interesting because even after that, I ended up publishing an article. Um, so this this goes beyond what we say in the book, but I ended up publishing an, ar- an article on this sort of choice argument. And the argument that I made is that, well, um, even if people would have a choice to resist God, does God have the power to open up that choice again? So, okay, so imagine, because there's this idea that you harden your heart, so there's like no going back. Mm. So you experience hell, but here's an idea. Maybe the very experience of hell it provides a kind of process, gives you new information, gives you an, a new acquaintance with the badness of bad um, that can give you an opportunity for a new choice. Now, maybe not right away. May, maybe there's an, an age of it that has to take place. But the question is, is God powerful enough to give you a new choice? Hmm. Now, let's say the answer to that is is yes. Okay. And I mean, it, I've come to, to think that I, I, just to be honest, like I've come to think God is powerful enough to continue mm-hmm. to give somebody a choice. Th- then you might wonder, well, would God want to? I think about my own children, you know, if they if they ran away from home, would there come a point where, you know, like the prodigal son is gone and I would not welcome them back because maybe I have the power to do it, but I wouldn't want that. Like, no, like I, I would 
always want to want them to come back if I could. So the argument I ended up making is a kind of probabilistic argument that over time, even if each choice is a fresh choice, uh, the probability that somebody would continue to make a choice of resistance across infinity mm-hmm. approaches zero over time. Mm-hmm. And so that it's hard to see how you could be certain that somebody would keep choosing separation uh, if they continue to have those choices. Um, and, and so, yeah, so if you can't be certain, well, then that opens up the argument for hope. In fact, certainty might go the other way. The probability is diminished to zero that you, you, yeah, that you wouldn't read. Um, it's basically hundred percent probable that you would repent eventually or turn to the light. So um, I wanted to put that in the positive and not have so many mm. negations in there. But if that makes sense, I don't know if, if that's clear, if you want to add anything to that, Rachel, um, but that was kind of an additional argument that it's not in the book, but it's more technical. Mm. And it does respond to that argument from choice, because I think that's one of the philosophical arguments for eternalism. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I think people first, they start with the biblical arguments. In my experience in having conversations, once we work through the biblical data, it turns quickly to the philosophical arguments. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's always kind of interesting. Like it really does end up becoming a philosophical. Well, I could add just one thing, which is that there's another um, another assumption that sometimes we can make in this sort of a um, you know discussion over uh, the nature of hell is that it's just between us and God. And I think um, if you take into account uh, maybe something like a ransom theory, that it's actually not just between us and God. It's like between us and God and Satan or, some, or something like that, right? If, if you really imagine that like Satan, like, you know, when, when God created the earth, Adam and Eve gave authority to Satan. Satan's the God of this world, that there is some authority or some sort of a contract or an agreement that God would have with Satan that, well, all these people are in my kingdom. Like they have to do this, this, this in order to be in your kingdom. Right. So then they're like mine. Right. Like, so, so then the idea is that it's not even between us and God it's between God and Satan. So like, that's like another interesting concept that sometimes doesn't um, come in, but that I have heard um, some Christians would uh, maybe lean that direction. Like, Oh, like there is, there are actually like legal agreements, like between, you know, uh, God and Satan, or like, you know, the way that, that God sets up the world, he makes certain rules. And, um, so that whole concept, we also bring that into our book as well. Contracts, agreements. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple more questions that we'll hit at here. I think one of the things that I, I could see as a potential objection is we live in a day and age where there's a strong emphasis in the church on the idea of the love of God. Uh, we talk all about the love of God and I don't know if you've probably not on TikTok, but everyone on TikTok is always just like, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and that's the gospel. And obviously, you know, it's not the complete gospel. We live in that age, and some people may look at this idea that you guys are bringing forward and just saying, well, you're, you're just emphasizing the love of God, but God's also totally just or things like that. So how do you look at the justice of God um, compared with the love of God in, in this book and in your views? I really want to address this. Now, my thoughts on this may diverge from Rachel's. But I want to say that so I can just very passionately just tell you 100% what I think about this. Mm-hmm. So I think the argument from justice is actually one of the best arguments for universal reconciliation. Mm. Okay, and here's why. It's based on my understanding of God's justice in the Bible. So what I've noticed is, and we Which talked- Which came from me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so she did this research. So she she fuels my mind with all that good. And the things that aren't good, they, they come from other sources. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I mean, she did this, this word study on, on justice, and she noticed that it was applying to those who were victims. So we talk about justice for the, the fatherless, justice for the one who was oppressed. In other words, what scholars say is that justice involves making things right for the, one, for the ones who were hurt, okay? So like if I take something from you, justice would mean giving back to you what was lost, all right? Now, in our current society, we've kind of flipped that around and we think of justice means making somebody suffer for what they did. It's not making things right. It's almost like making things worse because it's like, well, you hurt me, so now I'm gonna s- scratch you. Mm. It's not restoring things. Now, if that's if justice really is about restoration, then 
complete justice occurs when there's complete restoration. One of the things that's not restored as long as there's a single separated soul is relationship with that God image bearer. Because every soul is a God image bearer. Every single one. Sometimes people say, well, what about the angels and, and what about the demons? It's like, I'm, I'm taking it all the way. As long as there's any sentient being that reflects the glory of God, but that being is um, harming relationships, there's something that's not made right. So my argument would be that in order for justice to be fully completed, for all things to be made right, all the relationships would have to be restored and there would have to be a universal reconciliation. Now, the only question then is maybe, is that possible? So maybe, maybe it's not possible for God's justice to be achieved in a way that makes all things right, in a way that restores our relationships. Maybe that's not possible. But the point is, is that if you're going to argue that um, the reason that hell is forever is because of God's justice, I would turn that around and say, no, no, no. If God's justice is going to be achieved, then hell can't be forever. And I'm very convinced on this this point. I I'm very convicted even on this. I mean, that I, there's that verse where it talks about um, repaying evil with blessing. And why? Well, because it says vengeance is mine. Like, let God accomplish the justice of making things right. Because you don't have to try to make things right. So if there's an injury, if somebody hurts you, something's made wrong. And so there still needs to be something that's made right. If you try to make it right, you might not be in a position to do that. And so you'll just make things worse. Yeah, like the the idea that man's anger usually leads to sin and the idea that um, we tend to lean toward revenge when we're hurt. We want the other person just to suffer because we are suffering. And so it's uh, it's actually an act of faith. It's an act of trust to put that into God's hands and to let God handle things actually in the way that would be perfectly just, which is the thing that we actually struggle with because we actually don't want it to be just. We actually oh. want to inflict a little bit of pain when we're in pain, right? So um, so I think that's, a, and I do want to just add one point of of comparison. If, if somebody goes up and looks up um, the word study on justice, you'll find that the majority, the vast majority of the cases is justice for the oppressed, justice for the poor, justice for the ones who are victimized in a certain way. There is some usage of the of the term justice um, toward the wicked. And, and so I want to just bring in the complexity that sometimes, um, just like Josh had said that um, pride comes before a fall, that there is a sort of, a, a, you know, perhaps a, one of the mechanisms that um, provides ultimate justice is for someone to experience the thing that they inflicted upon someone else. But that ultimately, um, when you think about justice as trying to make things right, that it's not just that, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like that's not, that's not full justice. That the reason that there's the instinct, like if, you know, if you stole this thing, I want to steal from you. The reason that there's even that um, that instinct is because we know that it actually helps the person who did that to actually experience what they inflict on someone else um, so that they can actually come to see what it was they did so that they can see um, what the nature of that harm was that they committed. And so part of it is a learning experience and an understanding experience, which actually helps to make things right. So in a sense, you can have justice, you know, for the wicked that implies suffering of the wicked, but then that ultimately is restorative or, you know, in the, in the sense that Josh was saying, like to make things right, like, so that ultimately even the wicked, like God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. Ultimately he wants the wicked to, be restored, right? So so I just wanted to add that little complexity in there. Yeah, and I just want to say, it's like God's justice is just greater than our concept. And I feel like one of the things that we do sometimes is we have a limited concept and we use the word justice and then we apply it on God. And so it's like what we end up doing is we reduce the glory and awesomeness of God. Like we didn't understand that his goals were even greater. I mean, think about like the Messiah, like the Messiah comes into the earth, like through a line, where there was sin, there was, you know, things that weren't right. And yet God works through that specific line of unrighteousness to bring about this great treasure into the earth. And it seems like that's, it seems like that that's God's personality is to like bring about as much good and special goods out of bad things. 
And I think that if we sort of limit, oh, it's like that person was bad, so now they have to suffer, and that that's it. There's nothing good that's going to come out of that except for the good of them. What is it like meeting the abstract demands of justice? That's why we talk in the book about you know, do souls serve justice? Do souls serve the abstract demands of justice, mm-hmm. or do the demands of justice serve souls? And this is a question that we ask, and and we sort of um, weave that through the events as a way of kind of helping the readers to kind of like consider what justice really is for and whether God might have greater purposes, uh, like restorative purposes, like through justice itself. Hmm. Yeah. One one last question here. I want to bring up and maybe we'll hit a couple. There's some interesting thoughts in the chat. Um, I think obviously with your work, Josh, you, you've argued a lot for this idea of a perfect foundation. The foundation is perfect in every way through contingency. It's probably obviously what everyone thinks of when they think of Josh Rasmussen. Um, but how is that idea of this, of this belief that the foundation is perfect in every way? How has that influenced your beliefs, if any way, and kind of this idea of universal reconciliation? And it, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I feel like right in the beginning, I feel a little bit hesitant and I think the reason why I'm a little bit hesitant is because I already know there's a very strong, I mean, I had this, this strong sense that, that, um, you know, the Bible is clear and the only people who would take a kind of more hopeful view would be people who are moved by non-biblical philosophical reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, that just wasn't, that wasn't my story. I mean, I was defending everlasting hell philosophically and it wasn't until I looked into the biblical texts that you know, we had, we haven't talked about that in much detail here. Um, and there's a lot there and, and reasonable people can disagree. So I do want to say that um, about how to understand the biblical texts. Um, however, so, so I, I already feel a little bit of hesitation, like, because I don't want to, I don't want to give the wrong impression that, oh, it's like philosophy first or philosophy only. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like it is the case that when I think about a worldview, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what's consistent what makes the most sense of a supreme perfect foundation? And when I think about it, and I, and I just think big picture, it's like, well, here's a, a world, um, all lives end in ruin. This is kind of like an atheistic materialist world, like all lives and ultimately in ruin forever and ever and ever. That's like a worldview, right? Here's another worldview. Um, most lives and not only in ruin, but in a per- permanent conscious tormented ruin. Most lives end in in that. It's like, okay, um, you know, here's another view. Um, Most lives end in uh, something glorious. Most lives have a bright future, right? So there's like three broad views or like, here's another one. All lives ultimately have a bright future. That would be like the brightest of the views. Mm -hmm. And then when I just think about it, I'll just share this. When one morning I was at Notre Dame, it was dark. Uh, Was it morning? It might've been evening. I remember it was just dark and it was cold and I was trying to get back to my car and it was, it was just bitterly cold, like maybe below zero. And I knew I was about maybe 30 feet from my car. And in those days, I was thinking a lot about this question about hell and suffering forever. And so while I was just freezing cold, I just like imagined like, what would it be like if, if I knew this was my permanent state, just forever, just this coldness. And it just, it was so horrible. And then I was like thinking, now imagine like most people, most of the beings that God makes, before God makes them, he foreknows that if he makes them, they are going to suffer in this state forever and ever and ever. And I know this this isn't um, really an argument, but it was like, it, I just felt the horror of that. Yeah. And everything within me was just like, man, like if that's how reality is, reality is like fundamentally problematic. <laughs> There's something <laughs> deeply problematic there. Now, at this point, when I think about a supreme foundation, a perfect foundation, and I think about the kind of story or adventure I would expect to unfold, I would expect, at least initially, the sort of best possible. So even when there's problems, those problems are used for good. And so everything that um, separates itself from good can be used for good. And that would be my, my initial expectation. And so now I would need some reason to think that, well, there's something more horrible going on. And, and so then, of course, I'm open to that. I'm open to that reason. Um, mm. But um, but at this point, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. So the perfect foundation kind of provides a, a sort of a baseline for then thinking about, okay, are there reasons that would push against that initial expectation? 
And really mm. quickly, I think that um, everyone uses philosophy when they read something. So whether you know it or not, you're interpreting what you're reading. And so um, I think that when you are reading anything, but including the Bible, that um, sometimes we can be blind to the philosophy that has sort of been maybe that we've picked it up from our culture or we've picked it up from our church or we've picked it up from somewhere. Right. And, and that, that actually is influencing how we're reading it. And then, you know, you include in there that it's translated from another language another culture, and we might be misunderstanding things there. Then basically when you come in with a philosophy, that philosophy has a way of coloring um, whatever you're reading to be consistent with that philosophy, right? So um, I think that when you come in to read certain passages, if you have, um, you know, a different mindset or a different hypothesis in your mind, like, oh, I wonder if things could be this way. And then you read through a text. Um, sometimes you something can strike you differently. Like if you have a different hypothesis in your mind as you're reading it. And I've experienced this personally because um, I was kind of raised with the idea that you're not supposed to use philosophy, right? No. As you're reading the Bible, the Bible is clear. You just take it literally for what it says. But um, I've come to change my views on a lot of things. And a lot of it comes from, oh, like I didn't know that you could interpret, like, I didn't know that this text actually doesn't just have one literal meaning, like mm. actually when you're carrying a frame or a lens like into it as you're reading it, it actually flavors um, what you get out of it. Um, and so I didn't realize that, like how, how strong of an influence that has. Um, and so uh, for me, I think that it's actually a good practice. Like I'll just take um, a certain lens of something that I've heard somebody say, and then I'll go and I'll read the scripture just thinking in, in my mind, like, I wonder if this is true. And then I'm just kind of reading it with an open mind. And then it's like, oh, okay, like that was interesting. Like, I'm not really sure. It seems like this doesn't really fit or that. That seems, oh, like I never really noticed that before. And that that's an interesting practice just to engage in. Mm, yeah, for sure. Even, even if I could just add one more thing, like the text has a literal meaning, even if it has one literal meaning, um, there is a, still a question about like, well, what is that meaning? And I've noticed that there are times when a text, it seemed clear to mean this, but then when I actually looked at the original language, I consulted some scholars on this, uh, studied it in context, all of a sudden actually clearly means something different, clearly. And so what's clear, I think people forget this sometimes, like what's clear is going to be relative to your experience of the total data that you're considering. And so we have a whole chapter on how your experience actually unlocks meaning. And I, I think this is really important because I think one of the barriers to discovering something new is the feeling like that new thing is on the other side of a dangerous fence mm -hmm. and you can't go there. And that anybody who is over there has some kind of devious agenda. And when you look at it, it is clearly clear that they're wrong. Okay, well, maybe the reason that, well, may, maybe they are wrong. Okay, but may, or it could be the reason why it's clear that they're wrong is because there's a certain set of experiences that you're working with as a lens. And, and, um, but that if you have a different set of experiences, it will look differently. And so there are lots of texts, biblical texts that, I mean, they, it just looked like, well, the plain reading is this, and now it's, it's different. Well, just think yeah. about how many times the disciples misinterpreted Jesus. And he's okay. talking about, you know, the, you know, beware of the leaven of Herod and of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh man, like Jesus is so mad at us for forgetting our bread. You know, <laughs> you know, like if, if there's that much of a misunderstanding of like what is being said, like even in the moment, then you can imagine like how much misunderstanding there could be. And if we, you know, just assume, oh, well, this is just clearly what this means. I mean, I think that's kind of the attitude the disciples had a lot of times. Well, this is clearly what this means. And then it's like, oh, well, no, actually, that's not what that meant at all. Like, you know, well, it's you just know. like God wants us to inculcate the virtues of humility, curiosity. Like I mean, he, he loves it when we discover things, but discovery takes a certain kind of pursuit. Mm -hmm. And like even speaking in parables, it's like there's something there for you to want to discover. There's even a kind of romance in that. And so I think there, there is so much. I mean, that's maybe the greatest feeling for me that I would want to impart from the book is just that feeling of discovery.
mm. something special and awesome that maybe you hadn't thought of before or considered. And, you know, someone might be concerned, but the enemy also uses deception and, and tries to twist the meaning of the words to mean this or that. Right. And I think that that's actually true. Like that's a real concern that you should have, like as you're reading anything or considering any idea, right? So mm -hmm. this is why it's very important to develop discernment. And where does discernment come from? How do you discern between what's of God and what's not of God? What's what's God's idea and what's man's philosophy? Like, uh, like how do you actually decide between those? And I think that um, there's a very good uh, advice in the scriptures, which is that it's through practice. It's through, re you know, it's, it's through um, using it. It's through using that that um, sense that you have of discerning. Um, and so um, I think that that's actually a really important point, because whenever we have power to, um, you know, it's, it's up to us, like how we're interpreting something and what we think about it. And, you know, and so whenever we have a power, that power can be used to steer us in the right direction or in the wrong direction. So that is um, an important point of responsibility that I think we all have. Mm. Um, we'll go to a couple questions here. First one, we have, this is a question, it's a super chat from writer John Bach. Thank you for the chat. Um, it's been a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. I encourage everyone to listen to the full thing. Uh, lots of good stuff here to bring up. Thank you again for the super chat. Uh, question from Aiden Peterson. He says, uh, many non-theists argue that the exclusivist models of theism, models where not everyone is saved, is extremely improbable, at least a priori, if not across the board. What are your thoughts? You know, that's interesting. Um, because it might suggest a kind of intuition about what they would expect if God were real, um, a kind of just basic intuition. I mean, this does relate to what I was saying about, you know, if God is perfect, here's my kind of initial expectation that all lives would have ultimately a bright future, at least if, it, if that's possible, at least if God could keep opening up a door and making a path, um, and maybe that's what the non-theists are picking up on it. I've actually wondered about this, that like, almost like, what does it take to think that some souls are permanently suffering in hell? And I wonder if what it actually does take is a kind of um, sort of an authority, maybe an authority, maybe like a revelation or some kind of um, something that isn't, doesn't come from natural intuition. <laughs> Your own native intuition, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that um, I definitely can see this as, um, I mean, this is one reason why a lot of people would leave uh, organized Christianity in general, is that if they um, feel like, oh, like, why are you telling me that this is how God is? And this is how the world is. And, and you're restricting me. And like, I don't believe that this is true. And like, so then they they exit, you know, the organized uh, religion. And, um, and so I think that, um, you know, there could be a selection effect of those sort of people would uh, be outside of Christianity looking in. Um, or, I mean, it could be something like what Josh is saying, like that when um, you're just, you know, when a person thinks about it without any sort of external influence, maybe they would have, have a certain intuition. But then, you know, what a lot of Christians would say is we're not God. We don't see everything. So when God tells us something, we just have to believe it and trust that it's all going to be, you know, OK. And it's going to fit with our intuitions when we have more information. Right. So um, if you don't have that external authority telling you that or if you don't. Um, necessarily have, you know, the, the frame that, that is giving you like the idea that, well, there's probably some sort of mysterious other information that would change your intuitions. Well, then it seems like that would be very likely that um, an exclusivist model would um, be unlikely or be inconsistent with God's nature. Um, so I, I can really see that perspective. Yeah, uh, we'll go to one more question here before we wrap things up. Um, it's from Stelman Sith Jr., the unapologetic apologist. I think he's almost at a thousand subscribers. So congrats, Stelman. Go subscribe if you weren't already. Um, he says, is it possible that God could give a second chance, wants to give a second chance, but knows his omniscience that persons in hell will never repent? It seems to me such persons obviously exist. Now, how does it come to seem to you obvious that they exist? Now, that... That will be an interesting conversation. So in my article, I actually do address this um, kind of Molinist scenario. Uh, and I actually do run a, a probabilistic argument on the the cause of what creaturely, uh, free, free creatures would do. 
Um, and the argument there was that, well, given an infinite number of possible people, God would be able to select out a finite subset of people who would freely at least repent at some point. Now, maybe God wants to create infinitely many people. And then I also have an argument there that um, by probabilities, I can't, I can't go into it. It's too technical, but so that I'm stuck on the obvious thing. Now it's a great, beautiful question. Um, it, it would, this is going to depend on a, a particular theory of omniscience. And maybe the best thing to do is I'll give you a link to the article where I discuss that theory and how it plays into this idea that God keeps giving options. Yeah, I think that also there's a good thing to just uh, point out here, which is um, the idea that there's nothing impossible for God. So if God actually would want to do something that you would imagine that on the hypothesis that nothing's impossible for God, that um, even when you're dealing with free agents, that, um, you know, God would be able to eventually get what he wants um, in negotiation with a free agent. So that, um, that maybe then another uh, way to answer this question would be to say that God would never know that there would be a person that would never repent because if God intends something, then uh, what he intends will eventually come forth. So that's like, you know, one thought, but you know, Josh's thought might be, but it might be impossible, right? Like it might be (laughs) some people who just wouldn't repent. So you can't intend that. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's, I think a lot of it is intuition and then a lot of it is, you know, like, let's think about the arguments and like Josh said, like it, it includes a lot of things like, you know, what does God foreknow and what could he foreknow and how far out into infinity does he know? And like, you know, like it's just, you know, there's, and then, and then what is the nature of hell and what does that do to a person's psychology and, you know, like all these things. Right. So, so it's a definitely a complicated question. Interesting. Interesting. Question. I mean, I think if you had some independent reason to think, that there are people in hell forever. Then from that reason, together with this independent um, view about omniscience, you could then infer that God knows that some would never get out. I think that's right. Um, But if we just take it back and we ask, well, let's say God knows what all possible people would freely do. Um, You know, could God make a world where he only makes the ones who would freely repent at some point? And um, I have an argument that he pro- very likely could. Mm. So, but we'll have to I'll give you a link to the article to check that out. Yeah, that that's great. Right. Um, I think we're close. To, we're at the end of the time here. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Josh. Before I want to say, is there anything that we didn't bring up that you want to mention before we wrap things up here? <laughs> it's just been a lot of fun. No, it's just I think just the um, the idea that um, that exploring ideas is okay. And that, um, you know, that when you really are checking your heart, like that you really just want to know what's true, that you can trust that if you're sort of like, you know, asking God and like, you're, you're putting everything on the table, you're saying, you know what, like, I know I'm not perfect. And, you know, you can actually trust God to kind of point you in the right direction. And that doesn't mean that you're actually going to have hundred percent correct views at any point in your life. Um, but it does, protect you in a certain sense from, you know, getting very far off base. I think Mm -hmm. that, um, that you're safe to ask, to ask questions Mm -hmm. and, um, and to just, you know, keep that, that open heart, open mind. And, but also like, you know, maintaining and stewarding virtue, I think is a good protection. Um, So I just wanted to encourage everybody with that, that it is okay. It is okay to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Maybe my final thought would just be, we mentioned kind of the two layers of the book. One was on the question of the destiny of souls. The other layer was just on the nature of the kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of darkness. And just to kind of um, point out here that there are patterns of the kingdom of darkness, control, fear, disempowerment versus the kingdom of light, which is really, you know, the, the fruits of the spirit are a clue, love, joy, peace. If you see somebody operating with gentleness, self-control, these things, that's that's a clue that they're operating out of the kingdom of light. And the reason why I kind of want to focus on this and kind of land on this is that the question about the destiny of souls could feel speculative. It could feel like we've been talking about a lot of options. So where do we land at the end? You know, what do we have that's clear? And I feel like one of the things that is, I think, the clearest and can be the clearest to everybody is just this distinction between 
patterns of the kingdom of darkness, fear, control, um, disempowerment versus patterns of the kingdom of light. And that when you actually look for that pattern and distinguish the patterns, you your eyes open up, you recognize it in the political de uh, debates and the apologetics debates, whatever the debates are, you see when somebody's operating out of the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, you see that, you recognize it. And then it for me, it gives me a sense of personal responsibility because then I can check myself and, and then, okay, which kingdom do I want to operate under? And that was one of the things that I feel like was threaded in the book because the book was kind of an idea drama, but threaded through the book was what we wanted to do is really display the pattern of the kingdom of, of light, the kingdom of God in that, mm. in that way. Mm. Yeah, it's a really powerful book. I really appreciate your time, Josh and Rachel. And I encourage everyone, especially if you're, you know, questioning everything going on here, read the book. It's a really good book. They'll explain a lot of the questions that you guys have. Unfortunately, we can't get to everything and we'd probably be here for forever. Um, but I really appreciate the time. If you enjoyed this, please be sure to like, subscribe, and sit here in Apologetics. Follow us everywhere. I encourage you guys, once again, get the book. And if you enjoy us, you can support us on patreon.com slash adhere and apologetics. Josh and Rachel, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's yes, awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks.